0: Well, open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. We'll be in verses 22 through 25 today, the very end of the book. This is the last sermon in the book of Hebrews. Twenty or so sermons, it's been a great ride. The book of James will be our next Endeavor as a church. We'll begin that in two weeks, the first Sunday in August. Next Sunday, Jason Reed, our executive pastor, and I will be up in Minneapolis with about a dozen of you, test driving a relationship with Engage Global, an organization we may partner with to help to give our church, many, many members over many years, we pray, a taste of missions. Think. The function, the historic function of a short-term trip in giving us a taste of global missions, engage global can help us with that in the city of Minneapolis with the prayers that we would pray better for those we support on the field for our work among the Real Malayu in Indonesia, and that the Lord might raise up some young people to give their whole rest of their lives to the work of God's global purposes to the ends of the earth. So pray along those lines as we're out next week. Mark Vowels will pray for us. So between now and next Sunday, pray for Mark as he prepares to preach and give him your full attention as you always do with me. Now let's read the very conclusion of the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 22 through 25. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly, You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is God's word for us this morning. Now I'd said after the head of last week's sermon, which was the benediction, a lofty summary of the message of the book concerning Christ, that this sermon might feel somewhat anticlimactic, and that is somewhat the case. Uh, The author of Hebrews gives us that soaring benediction, and then he says, amen, And then he gives us some of these words, Uh, bear with my preaching, he says, you'll know about Timothy, he'll be released, he's been released, he should come with me if I come soon and greet all the leaders and the saints and those who come from Italy, send you greetings, who's that, we're not exactly sure, Uh, grace be with you all. There's a a final little benediction that he sends them off with at the the very close of his book. Um, But it's not exactly anticlimactic. It is here, it isn't the, that soaring benediction we had last week, but it's, it's no less important for it's in the book, and so we'll give this little stretch of text a sermon. Now, most of our t- morning, in fact, we will look at the whole of this morning's text through the lens of verse 22. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Sounds like an understatement of the year, of eternity, to my ears. It has not felt like a short letter. It's one of our longer letters in the New Testament, actually. But it's an interesting verse. It's a verse about the sermon. Now, we've said that the book of Hebrews is a sermon. And I'll explain a little bit of that even as we go this morning. I've touched on it throughout the series. He calls it my word of exhortation. Similar phrase appears in the book of Acts about a sermon that Paul gives in public at the synagogue. A Word of exhortation is shorthand for sermon or homily or an exposition of the word of God. The kind of thing that we do on Sunday mornings. I just think it's kind of funny that you know we have verses to preachers like preach the word in season and out of season. Season, go get it done and stay about it. Uh, lofty and uh, exciting and uh, confidence infusing, all of that. With this one, he says more or less, I appeal to you, please put up with my sermon. Uh, that's what it means. Bear with my. It really means that, like bear with my sermon. Put up with my word of exhortation, and then for I've written to you, I've written to you briefly, he says. Well, we spend an hour every week, don't we, on the preached word. I mean, I spend an hour just here with you, and then you set me aside and supported me to spend my week getting ready for this. We're pretty invested in this. Um, Some of you are studying the passage leading up to Sunday morning. Um, you all spend an hour sitting here, let's say there's 400 of you in the room, that's some 400 hours, rounding up to an hour, I won't spend that much time. Uh, that's a lot, that's, that's a big investment. Why are we doing this? Are we sure we're supposed to do this? Are we sure we're supposed, where did this idea come from? Could we chase that down? Why not a conversation? Uh, platforms like this aren't exactly, podiums like this aren't exactly in the Bible, a man stands behind it, and he communicates a sense of authority. The word is the authority, not the man. Um, but I monologue for, for an hour or so, and um, you know, it takes consideration of what you might be thinking and all that, so hopefully it's not just some straight, dry thing. Um, but it's not a conversation. It's a monologue. It's a, it's a heralding, a preaching. I'm going to fill out what that means this morning. Why not a conversation on stools? I've seen churches convert to that. Why not video? I mean, I'm okay, right? But like, come on, there are better preachers, so why not a video of a preacher? Why not, um, why not read a really good old sermon? We've had some 2,000 years since Jesus was here. It's a lot of time to accumulate some great sermons. Why are we paying the guy to write new ones? Why don't we just have him read some Charles Spurgeon? Plenty of Spurgeon we could read. Or, or like, forget preaching and the whole monologue thing itself. I mean, God gave us the Bible, and there's a whole lot of Bibles, so why don't we just spend an hour reading the Word of God? What could be better than just reading the Word of God? Where did we get this idea about preaching? Well, from Scripture... Ezra stands on a box when they rediscover the law and he reads the word and gives a sense of its meaning and those who heard were in awe. The prophets expounded scripture, preached the word. Even reading it and giving a sense of its meaning was enough to stir the hearers when they understood that they were hearing the word of God preached and explained. The apostle Paul preaches. We watch it happen in the book of Acts. Jesus preached. Uh, The apostle Paul exhorts Timothy in scripture to show himself a workman approved, to preach the word in season and out of season, to give himself to exhortation and teaching, in addition to the reading of scripture. So there's the public reading of scripture, but then there's the, the preaching of it and the teaching of it. So you need more than the Bible, church. In other words, God in his wisdom and his kindness and we must say in his witness and his kindness, I must say that because I'm a mere mortal and man, has given us teachers so that we might not just understand the word, but have it put on us and over us and heralded before us every Lord's day. That's his plan. But do we have an example in the Bible of a sermon in the context of church on the Lord's Day. Many of the sermons that we have are abbreviated sermons that were given in public, often evangelistic, in Athens, for example, in Acts 17, and there are others. But do we have an example of like a Sunday morning sermon? And, well... There's some flexibility as to what it can sound like and how they go, but yes, we do have an example, and it's the book, it's the book of Hebrews. As I said, he calls it, my word of exhortation, he calls it a sermon, and I'll, I'll repeat some things you've heard, reasons why we call it a sermon a little later in, in the sermon. Well, this morning's sermon is like an unusual opportunity. It's a sermon on a sermon, and in a way, it will feel anticlimactic. If last week's sermon on the benediction was a heralding and a preaching of the message of the book concerning the high priestly work of Jesus, this morning's sermon will be taking a look at the methodology and the understanding of what he's doing in preaching through the book of Hebrews so that we might understand what we're doing on the Lord's day in hearing and in preaching the word of God, A good opportunity, a rare opportunity, to, to preach on preaching, if you will. But not just a sermon on the mechanics of it. Because remember, this is God's gift of grace to us. The means whereby he keeps us until the end. So even the work of preaching and the way about preaching that he prescribes should be Redound to his great, glorious praise. So, this is a passage that helps us let scripture shape our perspective on preaching. I mean, why does he have this little verse here? I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. A little insecurity, the preacher at the end of his sermon, like, sorry, I know that was no good. I mean, sometimes I feel like saying that. I get in the car and drive home and it all comes together or something that was sitting right there I couldn't see because I was focusing on these things all week. Or in my small group, I love going to small group and we edify each other as members, me as a member and their insights are so wonderful and appropriate. I often wish I had them for you. And so there are conversations that I have during the week to help me, but but it's only appropriate for you to pick up where I and we leave off in the sermon to apply these things in more detailed ways, as you'll see. My point is just that sometimes the sermon's over and the preacher wishes he did a little better job for you. Is that what he says this here for? Sorry, guys, um, but thanks for reading to the end. Um, Hear what I'm saying, okay? I don't think that's it. Uh, Is it self-deprecating, like a light word at the end? You know, For I've written to you briefly, ha-ha. Uh, I don't think that's it. It seems to me that he's assuming attention span here. It takes about an hour to read the book of Hebrews. He wrote it to be read out loud. And I assume his hearers had the attention span for for that. Is it so that he would gain their hearing and keep their hearing there at the very end? I, I think that's the case. At the end, he says, I appeal to you brothers... Bear with my word of exhortation. To the extent that this was hard, thank you and bear with it. Keep it. Remember these things. For I've written to you briefly. What I've written to you, I've written to you what I needed to write. This was all important. Uh, Not more than what's needed, but not less than what's needed. I think that's part of what he's doing. He's gaining a pastoral hearing and keeping a hearing here at the end of his sermon. And really, the sermon part is largely over and he's converted to a traditional parting greeting, but you know what I mean. Could it also be that he's trying to shape the perspective of his hearers on what preaching is, how preaching works, and what's expected of them and him? And I think yes. He's pastoring them even at the end about what preaching is. And he's highlighting its importance and the importance of listening well and the importance of working at listening well, even putting up with a sermon from time to time on what it is by using that word exhortation, even the word my there, interesting. And I've written to you briefly what I needed to give you, he says, in other words. I think that's the case. And so that's the justification for giving a morning like this to considering how this book and that verse can shape our perspective on what preaching is to make me a better preacher and to make all of us better hearers and responders to God's word. What it is, how it works, why we need it, what to expect from ourselves and from a preacher, even what to expect from God. Now, I know y'all, and I could probably say this to any group of uh, sermon hearers, but I know my hearers too. And some of you, some of you need to raise your expectations on the Sunday sermon. Um, Now, I hope to meet them if they're raised biblically, but you need to raise your expectations. Your expectation is that it will eventually be over. Okay, so... You know, when you're a pastor and you, like, went to Bible college and then seminary and you've made pastor friends, your Facebook feed looks a little different sometimes. And sometimes it's encouraging, sometimes not so much, and sometimes there's a meme, a preacher meme, this morning, a gift from heaven through my Facebook feed for you and me. Um, A little picture of, you know, the little boy speaking to the preacher with dad and mom, and the boy says to the preacher, wow, preacher, Great sermon this morning. When you were done, my dad said, hallelujah. (laughs) I thought, that's exactly what I'm, like, that's a great joke for this morning because I'm trying to say that. Uh, I've preached some hallelujah sermons, amen, okay? So you can give them to me in the middle of the sermon and I'll know we're okay, but maybe I'll be encouraged to keep going so you'll have to decide whether you want to do that to me and tell either of your friends or not. Now, sermons require some work, which we'll see on On both sides. Some of you need to raise your expectations. There is more that God has for you in a sermon than you might be showing up on Sunday morning expecting. And that's going to shape how you pray. That's going to shape how earnestly you get to sleep. That's going to shape where your mind is, fathers, that will shape how you discipline your home to order Sunday morning so you don't repeat the same chaotic nonsense every Sunday morning. We're working on Sunday nights around my house. I have no idea how Sunday mornings go. They're here. Um, They're usually in good order by the time they get here. And I never hear anything from Christy, so I'm sure they're fine. My point is, is that what you expect God to do will inform how you show up and what you're listening for in the preaching. Well, some of you need to lower your expectations on the preaching. Some, hardly all, and you'll just have to know if this is yourself, think that preaching is supposed to accomplish single-handedly all that God would have for you spiritually. And so if you're having trouble in your marriage or you're having trouble with motivation or this sin or that or just spiritual apathy and disinterest, the first place you look is, well, that spiritual thing you do for an hour. I mean, you're giving it a whole hour a week. Well, you're counting on the sermon to bear a burden for as much as it's supposed to carry that it is not supposed to carry. You're supposed to carry some things out. So... You'll need to calibrate your expectations for the preached word accordingly. And there's plenty of here for us to chew on this morning. Now, a few qualifications. I'm not going to say everything about preaching I could say. There's plenty to say. Next week, if I were to preach the same sermon, I might want to highlight some different things. Uh, Teaser if I use a different acronym, I might have even emphasized some different things. If I had a second word that started with P, I might have emphasized. There's a lot to say about preaching. But here are about nine edifying insights into preaching from the book of Hebrews. At least they are edifying to me. And we're going to use the acronym preaching. Here's my justification for it. Preaching is an oral event. It's spoken and it's heard. And our author uses various oral devices, hearing devices that help the thing go down easy. Scripture writers use acronyms, they'll work from A to Z in the Proverbs, some of it's a memory device, some of it's for hearing. This author will use little rhymes and words that sound alike, you can't quite hear it in the English at all, really. Um, But you get the idea. So I'm going to do that this morning. Nine points. The outline is preaching. How about that? I had a whole bunch of points, and then I thought, can I shove all this into the word preaching and move some things around? Sure enough, so I promise I'll probably never do this again. But here, let's go for it. All right, preaching is, are you ready? Preaching is. Preaching is personal. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, he says. Preaching is not a detached, distant, or dusty exercise. It is deeply personal. Now, it's impossible for me to know all of you to the same extent or in the same way, but I know our church and every preacher's temperament and disposition is different. One preacher won't know you at all, and you'll be like, he knows me. Well, every time he walks into a room, everyone feels like he knows him. Sometimes it's just that way. Another preacher may feel more austere. And some of that's just how God makes people. But I'm telling you, this is not for me a detached or distant exercise But this preacher, as that preacher did, pours himself into the Word in order to pour himself out for you. Not another church, not audio on the internet, not the printout of the sermon that I put in my file. It's kind of nice to see the stack of sermons get taller, you know? Like, God's work is invisible, but it's kind of nice to see it kind of... (laughs) There was a time when I, I did focus on helping this material kind of make it out the other side of the sermon, and I tidy up my notes and I leave it behind. But you are my letter, as Paul said. This is a deeply personal work, and I want you to know that from me, just as this author wanted his hearers to know that from him. It's personal for the preacher, In in this case, it was his word, not someone else's. So here's how I hear that. Um, There's no place for plagiarism. Um, We use commentaries and helps and models, and that's fine. Um, I've usually got a few footnotes, two or three in a sermon maybe, where that idea came from, just in case I ever publish anything and uh, need to chase it down or remember that that image came from somewhere but a real sermon is the preacher's own work. And it takes a lot of time to do it. And it's why Timothy was here in this last year getting reps and reps and reps. And why I've been other places before moving here getting reps and reps and reps. It's the preacher's work. He may get help, but plagiarism is not an option. It's personal for him. It also, this does rule out impersonation. Now, they say... You know, don't listen to one preacher. This is in preacher school. Don't listen to one preacher or even two. Listen to five or you'll start sounding like the one you like the most. It's just what happens. If you were to listen to Larry Dyer, who I grew up under, my first real close relationship with a preacher, there's a little bit of Larry Dyer in my preaching. There's a little bit of a handful of other preachers in my preaching. Probably a lot of Ryan Kelly, where I came from, to hear. Now for me, Laren Heath is not Larry Dyer, is not Bill Cook, is not Ryan Kelly. Set under hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of each of those men's preaching. And for you, Jim Connolly is not Danny Brooks, is not Trent Hunter. And then it takes some gear shifting and a resetting of the palate when there's a new preacher, and that'll happen one day here, too many years from now, Lord willing. And for all of us, Trent Hunter is not Jason Reed, is not Dan Kruver, is not Mark Vowles. Next week is not Matt Jackson. And uh, that's a good thing. I see that as a good thing. I want different kinds of preachers in front of you as I'm responsible for this sacred desk. I want you hearing different, different voices, and that's good for us. And uh, each man is his own man. And each man gives himself to you with his word of exhortation. There's a little story of famous preachers, story of Tim Keller getting asked, how come he's not passionate like John Piper? And you think, oh, that's a good question, isn't it? How come he isn't... Hey, Keller's got his strengths. Piper has his strengths. Don't mix those guys or you'll mess it all up. Um, You get the idea. So it is with your average preachers like me. Well, it's personal for the preacher. It's also personal for the hearers. I appeal to you, brothers. Brothers. He's going to say to them throughout the book of Hebrews, he uses the word we... 53 times he's speaking to them in relationship and they're receiving it as personal for them he has prepared his sermon with them in mind and with them in his heart he understands their history and even recounts it out loud in chapter 10 about how their property was plundered and how they did at faring through All of that. He knows the history. He knows their maturity. And he calls them immature in chapter 5. And says they're dull of hearing. And they need to move on from the elementary things. He says, these things are hard for me to explain. Because you're dull of hearing. He's talking straight with them. Which he apparently has earned the ability to do. He has authority to do. But he also knows that they're not also immature. For he speaks to them about their love for one another. That he has seen as a reason why he has great confidence in them. Which is to say, excuse me, his hearers are different. He has different kinds of hearers, and he's tailored his sermon to consider the different kinds of hearers. So the warnings which are repeated and escalate in Hebrews are for all of us in different ways. For the one who is drifting, be warned about drifting. For the one who is spurning and scorning the Son of God and on the edge, a precipice of falling away, receive that great last warning for you. And for all of us, we listen in on the warnings, and we're warned about where we could go if we were to drift away from Christ. But we hear those warnings differently. We are all not on the edge of falling away, in other words. And he, in various ways, acknowledges. You have to have ears to hear this, that there are different hearers. He understands their history, their varied maturity, their circumstances. Even at the end here, he encourages them that Timothy, our brother, has been released. Now, we're just guessing that that is the Timothy Paul spoke of. He's in the orbit of these sort of apostolic and apostolic delegate writers. Um, And we're assuming it's not, I've released him, like, he was an intern and now we let him go. Like we're letting Timothy go. to It's not released him to Detroit from Greenville. Uh, it likely means released from prison. Which is to say that his readers, they're, they're, they're heroes in the faith. their local pastors. A guy like Timothy is arrested and in prison for the things he's believing and preaching. These folks are in the hot seat. They're under pressure. It's on the line. They're not reading about it in the news. The news has come to them. They're the news. And he gets that. He knows the pressures that they're under, the temptations that they're under. He also knows their physical limitations. Twice he'll say, I could continue, but I won't. Uh, We can't go into detail about these things now. Uh, We don't have time for that. You wouldn't listen to me to the end. I'm counting on about an hour, he's saying to himself. All of that he takes into consideration. It's personal for the preacher. It's personal for the hearers. And it's personal for our triune God. Remember how this book opened? You don't need to turn there with me. I'll flip around a little bit in the sermon. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God, the Father, spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. The Son is the very revelation of God. The better message than what angels ever brought. The thing they were always pointing to, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In chapter two, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it, what they've heard. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, that great salvation, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. All the members of the Trinity are at work in this project. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and our author quotes Scripture, The Holy Spirit is speaking today through the inspired Word of God, even through the preaching of the Word of God. How is it that in the first verses of this book, he says God has spoken to us now by his Son, but in chapter 2 he indicates that they're a second generation from Christ walking the earth. They're removed. In other words, the Son in walking the earth didn't speak to them. So how does the Father speak to them? By the Son to us concerning the Son, but through the preached word which was heard. That's how. The preaching of the word is God speaking to us by the Son. The preaching of the word inspired by the Holy Spirit is the Father speaking to his people by his Son concerning his Son. It's personal for our triune God. This event on the Lord's Day, this hour we spend together under the Word is a very personal hour for you, for me, most importantly for all of us. It is a personal encounter by invitation of and with the living God. That's what preaching is. It's deeply personal. God... Up close and personal in the preached word. And how can that be good for sinners? Because preaching is not just giving rules. It's not just for learning. It's not just for living. Like, this is a manual for how to live. Follow it. Well, kind of yes. And yes, follow it. But not in the main. Preaching is personal and preaching is redemptive. And oh, this word is doing a lot of work for us. How I wish the word preaching were longer. But I picked the word, right? That's my exhortation to you in this form. It's redemptive. Preaching focuses on, is fueled by, and heralds, the person and the work of Jesus Christ in order to save sustain, and sanctify the people of God. Preaching heralds the person and work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, his ascension, the whole bit, in order to save, sanctify, and sustain his people to the end. In other words, the goal of Scripture is immediately connected to the goal of preaching. The goal of preaching flows from the goal of Scripture. The goal of Scripture... Is It is a book centered on Jesus, holding out salvation for all those who will call on the name of the Lord. And so preaching is a mechanism by which that gets to you. Think of our nautical imagery through this series. Jesus is an anchor for the soul. Well... We've considered the style of the anchor and the shape of the anchor appropriate to our souls. We need the right kind of anchor and the high winds we're in and for where we intend to get. But the anchor's got to get connected to the boat, right? So you can drop anchor and if it's not connected, uh, preaching is like where it connects. It's where it connects. To use another water illustration speaking from experience in the last seven days we won't go there but it's fixed water has to get into your house right and it does all kinds of great things from there so it goes to the washer and it goes to the dishwasher and it goes to the shower and it goes to the sink you can you can work wonders with water in your house it's got to get in your house and so in the local church the word's Coming out all kinds of ways. It's conversations, it's Sunday school, it's the kids, it's elective classes, it's the singing, it's coming out everywhere. How's it getting in? You can think of the pulpit, the preaching, and remember this for when you have to move and find a church, you can think of preaching like that valve where it gets into the house. And that thing better be secure and strong, it better work, and there better not be a break lest it damage the house. Or over time, erode the very foundations and the whole thing comes down, even though you still got water coming. There better not be anything else getting in the water. No, this book and so preaching that flows from it, and all the word ministry that is downstream, to mix water metaphors again, you're welcome, downstream from the preaching, goes through the preached word. This pulpit here. And all of that is oriented around and flowing from a heralding of the good news of Jesus' person and work to save, sustain, and sanctify his church. And so the author of Hebrews has held out the word that we might hear the word of Christ. He's called us to trust by faith in the person and work of Christ, to hold fast to our confession of our hope in Christ, to go to Christ for help that we need As we follow Christ and to look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith in Him. How about that? All of that, the author has done for us. It's personal, it's redemptive, it's expositional. It's expositional. It's not just an encounter with a preacher talking about God and about Jesus. My authority and our authority in the preaching is... Derivative of the word of God. And so this author starts out quoting scripture and explaining scripture and making arguments from scripture and applying scripture. All of that. In fact, it's a bit hard to detect. But the book of Hebrews is itself an exposition of a single verse. a little unconventional for how we go about it week to week here. But nevertheless, the whole of the book of Hebrews is an exposition of Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the one to whom he is speaking, which is the son, the Lord says to my Lord in the first verse of Psalm 110, which he opens his book with, the book of Hebrews, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The book of Hebrews is about where Jesus is at the Father's right hand, And how he got there, how that's good for us, and what he's doing there right now. And that's unique to the book of Hebrews. That's its message. And every chapter of the book of Hebrews will quote or allude to Psalm 110, verse 4. It's an exposition of that Bible verse. And yet every chapter and every movement, he's pulling in the rest of the story to fill it out and show you how Jesus' high priestly work and his now enthronement at the Father's right hand is all that the Scriptures were looking forward to, and he draws on all the Scriptures to show us all that that means. It's amazing. And it's beautiful, and it was a lot of work, the preacher can say. A better sermon than the ones that I give you for sure. The man knew the Scriptures. It's redemptive. It's expositional. It's not a reading, it's not a literary event, but a listening event, which is to say it's also fourth, aural, A-U-R-A-L. I think they're called homophones, two words that sound alike, oral, having to do with speaking in the mouth, and aural, having to do with the ear. I needed an A, so A. But both, okay, got it? So I put a slash, oral, and we'd be, we'd be good, but I could say Preaching is for hearing, it's to be heard. Now you say, Trent, he said, for I've written too briefly. Yeah, well that's the only time he said anything about written, unless he's quoting scripture and the scripture says, for I've written. If you, if you read through a normal New Testament letter, you'll see a quote of the Old Testament says, for it is written. But in this book of Hebrews, which is a sermon, he always says, the Holy Spirit says, for it Has been said, for it says. This book is filled with the speaking and listening and hearing imagery, even what we've read a few moments ago. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, and so they are hearing uh, the preacher bear witness to Jesus in the course of this sermon. It's an oral event, and that affects how the sermon is composed. You don't hear me saying moreover in the sermon because I never say moreover. Now, if I said that in the halls a bunch, I might say it here. Furthermore, you're not going to hear that. That's not how I talk. This is how I talk. This isn't sort of preacher talking about God voice. This isn't wrote a paper for Bible school voice. This is wrote a sermon for you voice. That's what it is. It affects how it's composed, even how it's delivered. And I've worked over the years in messing with my notes to help me be a better preacher for the ear and pray that I would continue making progress. It's a reason why we don't do a whole lot with the screens. Some are like, I need all the points on my screens. And I literally would have said, yeah, I'll get rid of them before I give you more on my screens. The point is, this is a crutch for me. I start clicking through points all I got to do is like do 15 little sermonettes. It's like click through subpoints. You don't need all the points. You need the whole thing thrown at you, preached at you, right? You've got the Bible right in front of you. You want more of it, go read the passage. You can listen to the sermon afterward. That's why note-taking is fine, but I would recommend note-taking to help yourself here, not because the real work is done as you study later. Now, it's good to go study later. But let that be a follow-up and supplementary to the event of listening. And don't compromise your listening in order that you can transcribe the sermon to study later. You're misunderstanding. God's goal, God's design for you is not to study in the middle of the week, mainly, and then the sermon helps you go do that. God's goal for you, design for you, is for you to hear a sermon. And here it is. So, take some notes. Let it help you listen. Let it help you meditate. And uh, we do put them on the internet so you can listen again. Not shaming note takers, not at all. Just understand what notes are for. And maybe that'll put some of you at ease. If you like, feel you need to take a lot of notes, it's okay. And that's why we use the screen this way. These are headers, not material. I don't use the screen to give you material. I use it to give you headers just to break the, break the thing down, which can help. So hearing, it's a hearing experience. And we hear it, but we don't hear it alone. It's also congregational. It's congregational. He says, "Greet all your leaders and all the saints." This is a local church, a local church probably in Rome. Those who come from Italy send you greetings, and you say, "Italy is in Rome." No, you say that would be you would say that would be wrong. I wouldn't say that. Rome is in Italy. Okay, so why is he saying those who come from Italy send you greetings? It sounds like he's in Italy. No, he's probably outside Italy writing to Rome and saying, hey, those folks you know from home that are with me that I'm seeing out and about, they say hi to you. It's a local church, probably in Rome, with leaders and with all the saints, real people, real church members that they have in mind, not random co- gatherings of Christians in general. No, this was for a local church. Hear it congregationally. He calls them brothers. They're brothers. And you'll know there's different kinds of brothers. We've addressed this. And so he addresses different kinds of hearers in the local congregation. And so, friends, listen for yourself. Come to church and listen for yourself. Don't listen, you know, to judge other people like, ooh, they totally needed that. Hope they hear that. Hope they listen to that sermon after church again. Hope they took notes like Trent said they could do. Listen for yourself, okay? But listen for your brothers and sisters. Listen for your church. Because there's someone here who needs that comfort, who needs that exhortation, who needs that warning. And guess what? That's also for yourself because you're gonna be the one across the coffee table or on the other end of the line or the text message. And it's time to open up a conversation and put what you heard this Sunday that you apparently didn't need to work for them. So as you hear a sermon, you're not hearing it in isolation of your family, your church family and your brothers and sisters whom you love deeply. Whom you love deeply. So listen for yourself and listen for others. See that no one has an evil, unbelieving heart. It leads them to fall away from a living God. That's for you concerning your brothers and sisters. And don't neglect meeting together, not just because there's a sermon here for you, but because when you come together, you stir one another up to loving good works and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Sixth, preaching is hard. It's hard. Hey, he says it. Bear with my word of exhortation, right? It's hard material. It's complex. He says as much. It's hard to explain. I can relate with that. Um, it's severe. There are some severe words. He's got to say some things that are hard. And those things are also hard for the hearer to hear. And sometimes a sermon is hard for you to hear. If a preacher never says things that are hard for you to hear, I don't know, tickling ears maybe, that's a warning to preachers. It is a temptation. It's a temptation not to say things that will be hard for you to hear. It doesn't mean that everything I say that's hard for you to hear, I get right. It just means that saying hard things is part of the job. And I'm so grateful for elders that don't flinch when I preach what's on The page. We're together in this. It's hard because of pressures from outside us, our circumstances. It's hard because of our own hard and hardening and drifting hearts, isn't it? Well, we need to listen and we need to listen together. Seven, preaching is imploring. It's imploring. I urge you, appeal to you, listen to my word of exhortation, appeal, urge. He's exhorting them. Preaching is not about informing, although there's a lot of understanding to be had and explaining to be done, which he does. It is also about imploring, begging you, pleading with you, praying for you, appealing to you, persuading you it's not just about putting things in front of you to look at it's about putting things on you to carry home and to take with you and to give to each other and to bear and to consider and to receive as comfort and encouragement and to respond to with obedience receive and respond let us let us draw near to god with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Draw near to God in your heart, saints. That's imploring you. Let us hold fast our confession of our hope without wavering. As you look up, draw near to God in your heart in faith. But as you look out to the future, which is uncertain and scary, hold fast to your confession of your faith without wavering. It's like an appeal to all that you've committed to and all that you've understood, all that he's argued is true from the scriptures. Appeal to the heart and faith toward God and to the mind and its understanding and its commitment and its confession. And if you will, to the hands and stirring one another up to love and good works and keeping the marriage bed pure and visiting prisoners in prison and showing hospitality to strangers and all that's imploring. So, I implore you to worship the living God and draw near to him and to hold fast your confession of faith and to love one another and to stir one another up and to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. You could call that application. Application language tends to put the burden on the preaching and the sermon to get it all done for me. And I'm asking, how does it apply? I think a better word is, how might I respond? How would God have me respond? And if you listen with that question, I'm giving you all kinds of stuff through a sermon. And you can connect those dots even on your own. And in the details, consider that he tells you to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. In other words, the whole burden of your whole Christian life and all that you're to do, the preacher fully expects you can figure out on your own better than I can. And I fully expect that you can as well. So I'll appeal to you, Lord's Day, in and out to draw near to God and to hold fast to your confession of truth in Christ and to stir one another up to love and to good works and to be faithful to your wives and to all the rest. Preaching is imploring. Preaching, eighth, is neat. It's complex, but it's not chaotic. It's not a mess. There is order and coherence should be to a sermon. This very author has given us his central argument when he said in chapter 8, the point in what we're saying is this. See, he put it, he said my point. Here's my point. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man He has carefully arranged his material, bookending in chapter 4 and in chapter 10, his argument concerning the high priesthood of Jesus, the high priesthood where he tells us how Jesus got there and what he's doing there for us. He's told us on both sides to draw near to God, to go to help him for help as our sympathetic high priest. And there's a way in and there's a way out, a careful structure to This book and a central argument that goes along these lines do not fall away, for that would be very foolish for you, given the great salvation that God has given. And that would also be fatal for you, for there is no salvation apart from the sacrifice of Christ. That's it in Hebrews. Anchor yourself to that, and you will make it all the way home. Preaching is imploring, and it is neat. There's a central argument here and a careful arrangement, even a consideration of the amount of material. He says he wrote briefly, and friends, I'm almost done. One more point. Preaching is grace. Grace be with you all. That's how he sends them out. And preaching is grace for you. Grace for you, not from me. Grace for all of us from heaven. Grace to go all the way home with us, which we need, which I need, and grace to get us all the way home through this unshakable unshak- this kingdom with all of its trouble, all the way home to that heavenly city, that better country that we have been seeking, with that great cloud of witnesses that ever surrounds us. Grace from the Father, grace from the Son, and grace from the Holy Spirit for you. Let's pray. Well, Father, we I thank you for this example sermon and we thank you for this book of Hebrews and for its stern and repeated warning. It seems to get louder and louder for us not to fall away. And that you've worked in us to see how foolish that would be to leave him and how fatal that would be to leave him. May he be for us an anchor for our souls, an anchor for our church. And would you keep us faithful not only to Jesus, but to this means of grace that you've given to us by which we stay close with him, the preached word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.